from the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Oh, hello. What on earth was that? I am sorry, people of Scotland. That was my attempt at a Scottish accent. If it was anything, it was Glaswegian. And the people of Edinburgh would be so insulted to say nothing of the the islands and highlands. Islands and highlands. Is it highlands and islands? It's normally highlands and islands. Not that I'm being picky or pedantic. I'm enjoying a particularly nice Chateau Signac Appellation Côté de Rhone Protégé red wine, a Pliocene. Was it brewed in Edinburgh? It was not, but I have spent many, many very happy evenings in the pubs of Edinburgh. So, as you might have guessed, we've mentioned Edinburgh three times already. We might be visiting Edinburgh today. We certainly are. I mean, we're actually sitting in our studio in Israel, but we are looking forward to a wonderful conversation about Edinburgh. And it brings back memories for thee and me, does it not, sir? I think this was our first ever trip together many, many years ago. This was before Amsterdam and your wonderful, wonderful stag bachelor's party. Yes, I was definitely single for this one. We went for the Edinburgh Festival, which of course we'll talk about with our guest in a few minutes' time. Who did we see and what happened to them since? Uh, We saw Matt Lucas and David Walliams, who went on to create Little Britain. David Walliams is now one of the best-selling children's authors in the world. Isn't he also, or at least was, a judge on, is it Britain's Got Talent? Uh, Yes. We saw a comedian called Bill Bailey. Who became very famous uh, in Britain. An impressionist called Alistair McGowan, who also became very famous. He was uh, one of the voices behind Spitting Image, wasn't he? Which was a political, like it was political puppets. Yes, he's an impressionist. Did we see David Baddiel? I I have these memories of seeing David Baddiel, but I'm not sure we did. In case you're not British, we're talking about the top of the top. People who act in comedy, um, people who write comedy. And they all test the waters with their new routines at the Edinburgh Festival. Do you know what we should also do on this show as well? Go on. Talk about our most recent holiday. Or your most recent holiday. I realise it's already November, but we're going to look back to what I did in the summer. And then I think at some point in the not-too-distant future, we'll look at your latest trip. Because, yes, we do actually travel without one another. And with our families occasionally. Oh, dear. Who then never want to travel with us again after a week. It's hardly surprising, given our drunken abilities. So, yeah, we'll be off to New England. We'll be taking in a couple of destinations there, Newport, Rhode Island, and also Martha's Vineyard. And all of that, of course, brings us to the favourite bit of the show for Mark and I, which is our quiz questions. I'll do the old Scotland question. And Go then you for can it. Do New England. Question number one. The Elephant House Cafe in Edinburgh gave birth to which popular children's literary character? And question number two. Former Rhode Island Governor Ambrose Burnside gave his name to what bodily feature? The answer's at the end of the pod. This is Mark Gordon from the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. So, apart from the comedy in Edinburgh, what did you enjoy while you were there? I think I've said it on this podcast before, with the exception of Prague, Edinburgh is by far my favouritest city in Europe. The 
castle on top of an extinct volcano, Holyrood House Palace, the Royal Mile, the views, the, the, the tremendous, tremendous vegetarian food, particularly a place called Henderson's that I've loved for years. For me, it's, it's almost like I'm going back home when I go to Edinburgh. I obviously love the whiskey, but I had to drive that day. You made me drive on my birthday. Is that really true? That is really true. My birthday treat was to go to the Glen Kinchy Distillery just outside Edinburgh. Right. You didn't have a car. I had my car with me. So we, Actually, you must have made Ali out at that point if I had the car and you didn't. So I was already living in Israel and I, came, I think I came back from Israel to go to Edinburgh with you. Yeah, because I had no friends. You were my only friend. And I drove to the distillery. Anyway, enough about us. <laughs> we want to hear all about Edinburgh and why you should visit. And the person who's going to give the answer to that question and so much more is Dr. Hannah Holtschneider, who is Senior Lecturer in Jewish Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, that's the easiest question ever, (laughs) because it's one of the most beautiful cities in Europe. Even though you could say the weather is a bit changeable, I don't think there are many days in the year where you would say that Edinburgh isn't a beautiful place to live in or where the city doesn't sparkle in some way. It's also very compact, so you can walk most things. You meet people all the time. Um, Even if you're a visitor, if you've struck up relationships with somebody, you will meet them in the city. You've got access to a fantastic range of culture, of museums, of nature. So literally from my house, it's a 15 minute walk and you are in Hollywood Park, one of the biggest natural areas in Edinburgh to visit. Edinburgh is a bit like Rome, built on seven hills. What could be better than that? So it's it's just pretty everywhere. You mentioned the weather. We're, we're <laughs> dying here in David's studio because it's August in Israel and the air conditioning is not on. When is a good time of year to go and visit Edinburgh, weather-wise? We get fantastic weather from May to September. So May can be absolutely lovely and warm. So can September, can be golden, a little bit autumnal. All over the summer months is fine, but it's a bit hit and miss at any time. Lots of people like to come in December when it's very pretty and sparkly and the city invites visitors in for Hogmanay, but the summer months, really. And in the centre of the summer months, there's the festival, the Fringe Festival, and all the other cultural events are on the back of that. Dave and I have both been more than once, and we'd love to go back to do the podcast. While the city gets very, very crowded, how can our listeners get the most out of the festival? Well, the first thing to do is to abandon all FOMO. If you have it, then you need to leave it at the door, because otherwise you are never going to see anything and never going to enjoy an experience. The booklet with all the events is absolutely forbidding to leave through. <laughs> and what we usually do is choose something thematic. We, choose, we um, look online and you can do thematic searches of what exactly it is that you would like to watch um, and the shows you're interested in and then bundle them together either by geographical area so that it's not very far to walk between each of the venues or you just say, oh, I'm just going to do three events in a day and otherwise I'm just going to enjoy some street theatre and the city and, you know, let's uh, relax a little bit as well. There is lots of free stuff to do, particularly for families with children. There's the free fringe and there are lots of children's shows as well. Edinburgh has a special place in my heart as well because my great uncle, Rabbi Jacob Weinberg, was the rabbi of Edinburgh Hebrew Congregation in the 1960s. 
he's just a small part of Edinburgh's Jewish history. Can you tell us more about the wider history of Jews in Edinburgh? Sure. I mean, that is so exciting because so many Jews have connections to Edinburgh. It never ceases to amaze and surprise. So Edinburgh can lay claim to the oldest Jewish congregation in Scotland, the first one that was founded in 1817. And before that, we don't have um, a community attested. We have uh, records of individuals who came here. But uh, by the early 19th century, we have enough people to uh, support a chazan and a shochet. So I'll just, for those who don't know, say a chazan is the cantor in the synagogue and the shochet is the ritual slaughterer so that there would be provision of kosher meat. And he doesn't do both at the same time. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) 1817 is the beginning of the community. It's also attested that from then onwards, we have a Jewish cemetery that can still be visited. That is at that point off the city centre, but now it is very much adjacent to what you would consider the core of the city. Numbers then unsurprisingly begin to swell in the late 19th century up to the beginning of the First World War. And that's really the height in terms of the Jewish population uh, numbers in Edinburgh. Highlights are the building of the only purpose-built synagogue in Edinburgh that was opened in 1932, and it was built under the leadership of Rabbi Salas Deiches, who is also probably, no offence to Rabbi Weinberg, um, the most famous rabbi um, of Edinburgh. His son, of course, is the literary critic David Deiches. Salas Deiches came from a Lithuanian family, and he was very well placed to try and bring the two parts of the community together in the early 20th century. He served from 1918 until 1946, and the community was divided between the resident Anglicized community and all these newcomers who were Yiddish-speaking and very different in observance and inhabitants. And so Salas Deiches um, obviously came from a Yiddish-speaking environment. He was traditionally trained, so he had... Um, some standing and authority with the immigrant community, but he was also trained in Germany in a modern Orthodox way, and that endeared him to the Anglicized community. And he was headhunted from Sunderland to come and bring the community together. And he did this at least administratively and financially by building the the synagogue in Salisbury Road. And that remains the only surviving structure of the community. So tell us about the tour. There were four of us who created the tour. It was Mike Adler, Gillian Raab and Elaine Samuel and I. We are all members of the Edinburgh Jewish Literary Society and we are all academics. Um, Gillian is a statistician and she and I were working on Jewish demography um, Gillian worked with the Scottish census for a very long time. I was interested in migration and a settlement of Jews in Scotland, in particular in Edinburgh. And Mike and Elaine are sociologists. And so together, we all wanted to tell stories about how Jews came into the city of Edinburgh and how they settled. And so walking this seemed like a really good idea. So we take people from the city centre. We start in the, on the high street, the Royal Mile that connects the castle to, with Hollywood Palace and the Scottish Parliament. We start right in the centre and then we go down to the south side. And the south side is the traditional area of immigrant settlement. It's not only Jews who settled there. Italians did and any immigrant population uh, that arrived in the 19th and early 20th century came through the south side. We start there and we pick out a number of interesting individuals and tell stories about them and also try to connect it to the present. So, for example, there's a person in 1794 called Hyman Lyon. 
he's one of 18 Jews on the Register of Aliens, and he goes and does two things. One thing he is famous for is something you can still read in the National Library of Scotland. He was a chiropodist, and he published a book on important discoveries in chiropody. But he also purchases in 1795 a burial plot on Carlton Hill, which is one of the seven hills of Edinburgh. It's got the little um, reimagining of the of the Acropolis on top. And through thermal imaging, a few years ago, a grave site was discovered, a mausoleum that um, we think was his. And so this shows us that uh, Jews were resident in Scotland, uh, were able in Scotland to buy property, to buy burial grounds within the city boundaries. There were no special laws for Jews. Then we walk into the South Side and talk a little bit about the shops and the kind of flavor of the of living in the South Side. We visit the last bakery that closed in 2005. We, we visit the last butcher shop. And then from there on, we walk towards the meadows. And the meadows is the big green lung in the center of Edinburgh, a big recreation ground. In the early 20th century, it was still grazed by cows. Before that, it was a loch in the Scottish sense of a little lake um, from which the breweries of Edinburgh drew their water. And crossing the meadows means we are crossing into resident territory, no longer immigrant, but actually established residents. And so we visit the house in which Rabbi Dykes and his family first lived in 1919. Um, it's on the back of a primary school, Sheen's Primary School, where he managed to get free classroom space for Hebrew classes. So we can see at least the building. We can't go in, of course. And finally, uh, the tour ends up in the Salisbury Road synagogue, um, the very much the representative building. It's red brick, large, and is speaking about the Jews actually now being established in the city as an as an organic part of the city's population. And so, in a sense, the walking tour traces immigration and it traces personal stories and really gives a flavour of how Jews lived and and really established the city as their own territory. At the end of that tour, if visitors want to go and get a kosher meal, is that an option in Edinburgh? Is, is there kosher food available or, or good vegetarian restaurants? Well, different options. If you come to the festival, there is very often a pop-up diner in the shop. So this is a possibility. If the festival is there and the diner is there, you can have a lovely meal there. There are supermarkets stocking kosher foods in the south of the city. So they stock essentials. Depending on what your cash route orientation is, there are a number of established vegan and vegetarian restaurants um, that many Orthodox Jews find it acceptable to eat in. So there is uh, the Kalpna restaurant that is a favorite haunt for people with uh, traditional South Indian food. Everything's produced on site. Um, many people think that this is fine. And then there are uh, a range of uh, local shops that will stock things that are hechshed by uh, regular British authorities like the London Baydeen or the Safari Kashrut Authority. And so it's easily possible if you're happy with fresh ingredients and not much processed food to eat kosher in Edinburgh. On a wider front in Edinburgh, is there more than haggis and whiskey for people to have? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, so it's not as cosmopolitan in its uh, food orientation, say, as Manchester or Birmingham or London. But we basically have restaurants of all different flavors in the city and um, many new food traditions coming in. There's lots of fusion restaurants as well. And if listeners want to join a tour, how do they do that? How do they get in touch with you? Right. So we are not actually doing physical tours. We are not leading people through the city anymore. However, the tour is available on an app. And so if you look for the Curious Edinburgh app, it's available for iPhone and Android. Likewise, 
There are many different tours, one of which is the Jewish History Tour, and you can download it and basically be guided through your smartphone through the city. And it takes you about, if you're walking fast, it takes you 45 minutes, but you can stop in many coffee places in between and take your time walking the city and discovering Jewish history. Dr. Hannah Holtschneider, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Edinburgh Fact File. There are direct, non-stop flights to Edinburgh from North America, from JFK, Newark and Toronto. There are no direct flights from Israel, but one-stop flights on Wizz Air, EasyJet, Ryanair, BA, Lufthansa, KLM, Turkish and El Al, via Heathrow, Frankfurt, Luton, Amsterdam and Paris. If you're spending time in London, it's as quick and far more pleasant to take the train up from King's Cross. There are buses and trams from the airport into the centre of town. Do not hire a car for time spent inside Edinburgh. The big luxury hotels in the city centre include Balmoral, Waldorf Astoria, Sheraton, The George, Radisson Collection and The Witchery. Further out from the centre are the Malmaison in Leith and Prestonfield House, which is in walking distance to the Orthodox Synagogue. Middle range price hotels include 19 Hill Place, Apex Waterloo and the Salisbury Hotel on the same street as the Synagogue. There are many self-catering accommodations, new and top range are the quarter mile apartments. There are no supervised kosher restaurants, however kosher meals can be ordered in advance from Glasgow, from Mark's Deli and Lachaim's kosher restaurant and caterers with delivery arranged. New vegetarian and vegan restaurants spring up every hour. The old favourites are Kalpner, David Ban and Henderson's All Glatt Vegetarian. Newer ones include Seeds, Thrive, Beetroot Sauvage, Nova Pizza, Senviet Vegan and Sora Leila. And now the latest news from the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. The number of tourists visiting Israel are still down on pre-COVID levels. While Israelis are traveling far and wide, the country has not yet attracted mass travel. Despite September's high holy days, visitor numbers were down 39% on the same month in 2019. Meanwhile, Israelis are traveling to Turkey in record numbers with other top destinations including Greece, the US, Italy and the UK. Israel now ranks number four in the list of tourists visiting Georgia, the country in the Caucasus. They come in second place in visits to the Black Sea resort Batumi. That's according to Georgian ambassador to Israel, Lasha Zvania, speaking to the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. You can currently fly from Tel Aviv to Georgia with four airlines offering multiple weekly services. Soccer's World Cup is well underway in Qatar. Fans from around the world descended on the Gulf state for the month-long football festival, including Israelis. It's the first time there have been direct flights between Tel Aviv and Doha. However, reports suggest cooked kosher food is unavailable and public Jewish prayers are not allowed for security reasons. A Jerusalem hotel that used to be a residential centre for visiting Jewish students from Young Judea was just named as one of the best luxury hotels for families in the world. The Hotel Yehuda, where my son Yossi had his bar mitzvah, also took plaudits in the best spa hotels in the Middle East category. The hotel overlooks the Jerusalem Zoo and is just a couple of minutes by taxi from the Malchamal, Teddy Sports Stadium and the Pious Basketball Arena. 
very sad, David. Why, sweetheart? You didn't take me on holiday. <laughs> you went without me. 25 years ago, a bit less, 24 years ago, there was this woman, and for some very strange reason, she said yes. We've been manacled together ever since. And once in a while, she looks at me and says, leave your lover, come with me. Oh, that nice lady that cooks your dinner. <laughs> absolutely. And reared my children. She did, she did. But they've left you now. They absolutely have. Which is part of the reason that we went to America, or the United States. To get further away from them. No, my daughter, who we talked about recently as being a cook, Talia, decided she was going to head away from Israel and try working in the United States for a little while. On the way, we decided we'd spend a vacay with her up there, a sort of a last hurrah, and we did a whole family gathering. Is this what they call revenge tourism? She's, <laughs> she's lived with you for 20-something years. It's your turn to like turn up at her house and go, Oh, hello. Oh, if only, if only. No, I mean, we were still paying for stuff for her. She's not started a job yet. So uh, hopefully the next time we go over there, she'll fork out the money and take us for dinner. So where did you go? So the two places I thought we'd focus on over the next few minutes are Newport in Rhode Island and then across to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Oh, drinking. Oh, a vineyard. Yes. I, I drank a little bit of wine while I was there and it was very nice. Did you bring any back? No, no, no. I've got so much alcohol back at home in Israel that uh, we didn't. And in any case, our suitcases would have been overweight. Uh, hello, remember me? Uh, <laughs> you are the first person to say you've got a full, full, full alcoholic drawer, liver. cupboard, liver. Yeah. So should we look at Newport? Yes. Newport's important, I would say, for a Jerusalem Post listener, the main reason being that it has the oldest synagogue in the United States still functioning. It's an orthodox synagogue, very active. There's a local Jewish community of about 100 people, and they offer tours. Is this Newport in Wales? Didn't I say Newport, Rhode Island? I'm not sure if you did. <laughs> well, now that I'm you... I'm just looking at the map in front of us. It says Portsmouth nearby, for those that know England. There's Portsmouth in England, Newport in Wales. If we open up the map a little bit more... Okay, let's randomly zoom out. I see an Exeter, a Warwick. A Worcester, Massachusetts. Or is it Worcester? Is it, how do you say Massachusetts? Because you always tell me often. So no, Massachusetts is right. Not Maryland. 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 What I would say about Newport is that it is a fantastic place to go for, say, two to three days. It is delightful. It's compact. You can walk most of it very easily. It is a little bit hilly. Something that we did, which I would strongly recommend, not just for Newport, but generally when you're traveling, is to look if there are any apps that offer a tour guide, an audio guide that you can either walk to or drive to. So we found one that we paid a little bit more. I think it cost us $10 and we got a 78 stop tour guide and it works on a GPS system. Half of it was driving and half of it was uh, walking. So we did the famous cliffs walk, which goes to the, um, obviously it's looking overlooking the cliffs, but also you're looking at all of the famous mansions, the famous rich families of the United States, the, the big families that built up the United States, the railroads, many of the industries, they had their holiday homes there. And when you and I think of a holiday home, we're thinking of... 
Log cabin. Log cabin, a bedroom here, a bedroom there. There, we're talking about some of the biggest mansions you will ever see, based very much on the British or French uh, examples. And so this tour guide talks you through all of those different homes. And to be honest, we refused to pay the money that it cost to go into some of those homes. So the best known of these homes, it cost $29 per person to go inside. And we said... We were only going to go in for an hour or so because we were with our daughter who doesn't have that patience. And we just thought $90 for three of us was just too much. And those people with those big homes, they really don't need your $90. <laughs> Interestingly, don't forget the people we're talking about were in there in the 1800s and early 1900s. They're probably dead by now then. Absolutely. But some of their descendants who still own the properties apparently were not that good with investments and do depend on the dollars that people spend um, viewing their homes. So why Newport as opposed to Providence, which is a much bigger city in Rhode It's Island? a really, really good question. I would say with Providence, it, it's a great place to visit as well. Not that I have been, but from looking around. But it feels much more city-like. So they've got a beautiful river that goes through the town. There are lots of modern buildings to look at, but it doesn't have that old world charm that Newport is full of. Some people would say Newport is maybe a little bit too swanky. It's too much of, of that, you know, rich people and people coming to the marinas. But for us poor folk, it's also great to, to just have a look at. Question for you. Looking at the map, there are lots of places from southwest England. I mean, I know this is New England, given my limited geography, but you've got Somerset, Swansea, Bristol, and Exeter, and Newport, which is on the border. Do you know why? Yeah, it makes sense that the Founding Fathers, these were the first places that they landed. I'm looking a little bit further west. It's not just places from the southwest, although you're absolutely right. There's also places from the southeast of England, from Canterbury, from Rochester, and they settled and they wanted a new start but they also wanted to remember the old country hence new amsterdam or new york you know the focus being on the new but also remembering the old and that boat from lebanon connecticut must have been really lost <laughs> lebanon is one of the most popular names in the united states behind paris and, and london let's have a, a look for a couple of minutes at martha's vineyard which offers a very different type of trip and there i would say opulence is is number one from the moment you get there although oak bluffs which is the main tourist ferry point you come in normally from falmouth in the south which used to be in the southwest of england which is the the it probably still is in the southwest of england to be fair global warming may have had some effect before we get to martha's vineyard just a mention for a cambodian vegetarian eatery in a place called Mashpee, which is about 20 minutes north of where you get the ferry. Really, really worth a detour. I'll bear that one in mind. Martha's Vineyard, then, is an island. It's absolutely an island. It's a 45-minute ferry ride. The ferry is expensive. If you're doing it with a car, it is very expensive. If you're just doing it on foot, that's okay. There's also an airport on Martha's Vineyard, not far from Edgartown, about 10 minutes from Edgartown, which is the largest uh, town. So there are flights offered from New York and other places around the northeast of the United States straight into the vineyard. Scheduled flights were these like, yep, private yep. private jets. Scheduled flights. If you want to know about private jets, Nantucket, which is slightly further southeast, that is the place for private jets. Rumour has it that more private jets fly in to Nantucket in the month of August than all of the planes that fly into Boston Logan Airport through an entire year. Hard to believe, but that's the rumour on the street. 
bit like Monte Carlo. Exactly. In fact, whilst Martha's Vineyard is posh, it doesn't feel manicured. Apparently in Nantucket, you cannot move an inch without feeling like you are in the rich people's playground. I would say that uh, Martha's Vineyard has something for everybody. So what do you do in Martha's Vineyard when you get there? Lots of little villages to take a look at. There's also some lighthouses that offer fabulous views. You can rent a boat. I was in a family gathering. We went on a schooner for two hours. That was a lot of fun. Edgartown is very cutesy. Um, Oak Bluffs is really in-your-face touristy. And there's lots of cycling. There was lots of kite flying while we were there. Uh, It really is an outdoors paradise. You can just go to some of the lovely beaches. As the vineyard name suggests, there are plenty of places to get a good drink and a bite to eat. We were based in the Edgartown area. The weather was ideal. The sunsets were out of this world. Are there former presidents that live there that charge $29 a person to go and visit them? Well... I don't think they charge, but about a mile and a half from where I was staying is the home of Barack and Michelle Obama. And when he was celebrating, I think it was his 60th birthday, not too long ago, maybe I'm wrong about the age, I think 60, you could hear the music all all around. So, So he's certainly there. There's one place I can see on the map that looks just suited for me where I can go and relax and it's called Chilmark. <laughs> Chilmark's a lovely village and if you're heading in the Chilmark uh, destination which is down in the southwest corner then I strongly recommend heading to Menemsha for the beach and just to look at the boats and to buy fresh fish there. The fish there is I mean, it's being brought in all day long in these small boats, well worth buying. And then to head out to Aquina, I think it's pronounced, which is a beautiful cliffs overlook, lots of birds, terns and seagulls, and also a great uh, lighthouse view there as well. I like the sound of Squib Knocket Pond. <laughs> there are some great, great names throughout that part of the world. And also, whilst we've been talking about all of the uh, names from Europe, we must also think about some of the places named after the first indigenous Americans who populated this part of the world. Promise to take me with next time? Where do you want to go, sweetheart? Anywhere. Just don't take that woman that <laughs> cleans for you. Take me with. <laughs> Newport, Rhode Island and Martha's Vineyard fact file. There are numerous airports in the Newport and Martha's Vineyard areas, including the major international hub at Boston Logan. There are direct flights into Boston from all across the US and Canada, with non-stop services also from Tel Aviv, Istanbul, London, Munich, Paris, Sao Paulo, Tokyo and Dubai to name just a few. Renting a vehicle is a good idea for travelling to Newport and Martha's Vineyard, though public transport does connect both with Boston. It's a 90-minute drive to Newport and two and a half hours to the vineyard, including the ferry crossing. Summers are warm to hot in Newport, while winter can be very cold and snowy. Martha's Vineyard sees warm, humid and windy summers, while the winters are very cold, snowy and extremely windy. Top hotels in Newport include Artful Lodger, The Vanderbilt and The Chandler at Cliff Walk. The vineyard's best offerings include the Edgartown Inn, Lambert's Cove Inn and Resort in West Tidsbury and the Oak Bluffs Inn. There are some great eateries in Newport. Think fish and seafood. The kosher offering is surprisingly good with the supervised root vegan juice bar and restaurant. 
Sprout and Lentil Vegan Restaurant and Plant City X in Middletown. There's also a small Aruv in town. On the vineyard, there's the Vegan Juice by the Sea in Oak Bluffs, which offers meals as well as drinks. And as with Newport, there are terrific fish restaurants. It's the end of another show, almost. It's a shame that. I was quite enjoying that show. Can, can we talk for another 10 minutes? <laughs> Folks, this was an experiment where rather than bringing in on a guest or rather than us being somewhere, we talked about our own travel experiences. If you would rather us shut up and you'd never want to hear from us talking that way again, let us know by sending us an email to markdavidpod at gmail.com. Conversely, if you enjoyed it, please let us know. We love your feedback. But we're going to ignore it because it will be my turn in the next podcast. (laughs) Oh, our thanks go to uh, Dr. Hannah Holtschneider for her input on Edinburgh. And Mr. David Zev Harris. Talking about my summer holidays. It's like first day back at school writing the essay. I used to hate I know what you did last summer. (laughs) It was a bit of a horror story. (laughs) Oh, dearie me. Do we want to ask people to do anything else apart from email us? Subscribe. And then, every two weeks, our podcast will appear as if by magic. If I'm not mistaken, this is episode 47, which means there are another 46 episodes that you can listen to at this point. I have a very good friend who was just over in Israel. Actually, do you know what? She wasn't a very good friend, but she is now. I only met her over the last week or so at a convention. And I told her about the pod and she said, you know what? When I'm flying back to America, I'm going to download five, six episodes and listen. And she actually said she really enjoyed them but she isn't going to download the other <laughs> So why don't you take her uh, message on board and subscribe and listen to all of our old episodes. And if you enjoyed the episodes as much as David's new friend... <laughs> I have one. <laughs> please give us a five-star rating. David got a three-star rating as a friend. <laughs> Three out of five's not bad. I won't spoil it too much about next week, but I walked into a hotel and behind the desk it said, we've got a 7.2 rating out of 10. I mean, that, that's worrying when you see that, but... Uh, we'll get to that in an upcoming episode. Anyway, time for the questions and answers. Question number one. The Elephant House Cafe in Edinburgh gave birth to which popular children's literary character? And the answer is, David, you well, know this I, one. I know this one. Well, tell oh, me. I meant to say it. Yeah. Harold Potter. Harry Potter, indeed. J.K. Rowling would sit in the Elephant House Cafe and tippy-tappy type away at her seven novels that she wrote, I think. Something like that, yeah. Or was, yeah. It, was it seven movies or seven novels? Seven movies and six novels. Six novels. But there's also the other series as well, of the amazing creatures and... She'd probably moved out of the cafe by the time that was... <laughs> Uh, am I allowed to be very self-indulgent for about 60 seconds? Well, you have been story? for like 30 minutes, so... That's, that's also true. Purim is a Jewish holiday where we dress up like fancy dress costumes. And one year, I just put a lightning bolt on my forehead and walked around with a microphone. Do you know what I went dressed as? Zorro. That's very good, actually. No, I went as Harry Porter. Oh, dear. Thank you very much indeed. And the best bit about that was nobody had a clue. And I loved telling everybody over and over and over. And I felt so self-vindicated. like <laughs> Mark's pulling a face. No, I'm thinking of a, a costume joke, <laughs> I know, but not, not suitable for the airwaves. Okay. If you email Mark 
markdavidpod at gmail.com. He'll tell you what he's thinking. Question number two. Former Rhode Island governor Ambrose Burnside gave his name to what bodily feature, Mark? I haven't got a clue. I was trying to think it was an anagram of something. What would that be? And I saw bomb in there, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think that was it. Uh, we need to be taken off the air quick. The answer is sideburns. Oh, Burnside, sideburns. There you go. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed making. <laughs> Oh, it's very good wine this it's very good we'll see you next time on the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition farewell my friends goodbye